Hey folks, this is Andy with the Poor Proles Almanac. This is part two of our conversation with Shauna Hansen over at Three Streams Farm. If you haven't listened to part one, go to the previous episode and listen to how this conversation begins. For the rest of you, enjoy the rest of this conversation. You know, that brings me back to that research paper or the research you had done in 2020. Uh, where you had tested all the different, I think it was primarily the silage that you had made. By the way, only the reports are dated 2020. Okay. <laughs> the action actually happened in 2018. It just takes that long for me to <laughs> Well, it took an extra year to finish the demo plot because there were trees that Josh and I didn't get to, and then I didn't have any more money to pay any interns. So it was just me. Gotcha. <laughs> and, then, and then I had to write the reports. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's slow work. The SARE one is 44 pages long with a table of contents. So that's probably the longest thing I've ever written. Yeah, it was really interesting to see all the different tree types and how diverse the nutrient content can be across species, even though they share the same ecology. Right. And not just across species, because if you if you cut oak off of a pollarded tree here at my place and you cut some in the woods, it might be completely different. And it's, I know in general, you know, if it's juicy, luscious, what I call happy growth, (laughs) the goats want it. And that I think is almost more important than which species it is. Like if the tree is happy. Yeah. I I mean, it makes sense. You know, if they're getting everything they need. And we can, we can experimentally define what happy means for, for trees. You know, we can probably measure bricks count and, and, you know, growth rings and darkness of the greener you know as much how much chlorophyll (laughs) i know that a maple tree can be a yellowish green or it can be a dark dark green usually the dark dark green is happier yeah Yeah, i i would agree you can spot the the tall trees along my bottom of my pasture which ones i've pruned and which ones i have not by the darkness of the green and in the fall you can spot them because they're still green and all the others are turning colors no that's cool like for an extra week it's still green Younger, happier growth is, is really um, vibrantly strong, really healthy. <laughs> the utilization of these trees as feed, uh, especially like that, oh, you're calling the happy trees. Do you think happy based growth. on, or, yeah. sorry, happy growth trees? No, both. both. The, <laughs> We're concerned with the pieces we cut off. <laughs> sure. Um, do you see an evidence at this point that would suggest that I know it's been traditionally used, but that we can still utilize it as something that can be almost like an anti-parasitic. Well, we, yeah, last fall we, we got invited to submit a novel approaches, but there was way too much in it. It's really good. They didn't give it to us, <laughs> but it had parasite testing with Elliot Van Pesky's sheep at Meadowsweet farm, but he's repairing a barn and he doesn't have time to do that. So we're not putting that in yet on any of them. But somebody should do that. But you have to get enough quantity to feed them it all winter. Yeah. And so that was one that was in conjunction with Lucas Tree because they, you know, they do things in quantity. <laughs> and so we were hoping to then get enough of it to enough silage, chip silage, to be able to test sheep parat- parasites with two groups. But we didn't get it and we didn't do it. Thank goodness. It was going to be a lot of way too, way too many parts of it. It would be too complicated. So for your goats, do you um, do like fecal count to uh, test for parasites? I've never done a fecal count and I know I have worms and I'm the only person that I know with goats that hasn't had anybody ever die of, of worms. Seriously. 
the barber pole worms and they have a, a goat die now and again. And I knock on wood, you know, I have not had that happen. And I do have another breeder that I got my little buck from when he was a day old and she's at all the shows and stuff. And she just says, you avoid a lot of health problems, Shauna, by the way you manage your goats. <laughs> because the browse is all definitely helping on that. Yeah, that's my understanding is the the tannins seem to be a big player in managing parasite load. Yeah. But like you said, there doesn't... Well, tannins and, and all the other antifeedants, there's a whole category, sure. chem- whole list of chemicals. And, and they're not just doing that because they're also in our milk and you can taste them. And they're anti-cancer and anti-inflammatory and all kinds of good things for us to ingest from the milk and possibly from the meat. I don't know. I know the fatty profiles are different. The fat profiles, when you feed them differently, grass-fed versus not grass-fed cattle, the fat and the meat is like good for your heart versus bad for your heart. Yeah. <laughs> and then the tree, tree fats are even different again. I know. So one thing is that the milk keeps longer. So I'm not licensed and I milk outside and I wash things with cold water and people give me their jars washed. So I don't wash anybody's jars. <laughs> and um, I uh, have put my milk in someone else's milk when I covered for somebody milking, stuck them both in the cellar and the sour cream rises up and the milk clabbers and it sits there. And a week later, theirs has three kind colors of mold on the sour cream. Mine can sit all winter and never have mold on the sour cream. Oh, wow. In the cellar, in the root cellar. I mean, it's not hot Still. down there, but, and it's dark. Yeah. And, and people always report that their milk keeps, you know, longer than other milk. Well, they did get it fresh, but nothing was particularly sterile, except that the goat's guts are really healthy because of how they're eating. And it also isn't goaty. And even the aged cheese isn't goaty. That's interesting. And I, I really think it has to do with, you know, they're eating how they're supposed to eat. And most goats really don't get what they need. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting to see how different the diet can impact how they live and how their health seems to appear, especially when you're talking about something that. And, and fence jumping, yeah. <laughs> you know, if they have what they need, they stay in. And if they don't, they jump out and go find some brows. Yeah. Even sheep do the same thing. And right. it's funny to see how, how quickly they can figure out where things are. So like right now where they are, the paddock that they're in, there's a bunch of huckleberry bushes next to them, like right outside the fence. And they mm-hmm. haven't escaped yet, but they have figured out a way to reach to some of the leaves to pick at them. So I've been like cutting a couple of them, which I hate to do, but I'm like, you know what? I'll just give them a few they, just to make... They don't grow back that Yeah. Quick. I'm like, I'll give them a few. Well, they do. I mean, they get burned and they come back, so... Yeah, when we started talking, you had mentioned, it sounded like you, you do a little bit of burning. I have a blueberry field now, only... So it's really dumb to add a cow and add a blueberry field when you already are booked with goats. But the cow was going to go somewhere else unknown. And she was my friend from feeding her tree leaf stuff or not just tree leaf stuff, but tree fodders, um, the chipped stuff. And she ate everything. And then she would put her head down and she let me pet her as long, you know, indefinitely without bucking her head around at all. And she made a, she hooked me in and she was basically like, I want to come to your farm. You have this woodland stuff. And so then when they were going to get rid of their cows, she came home with me and I paid for her. I saved up and paid for her and brought her home. And the first thing she did was eat duff under the leaves in the woods. Like she'd go for the ones with all the fungi. <laughs> <laughs> and rip the moss off of rocks and eat the whole thing. 
and she still just really wants that's and she eats every uh she tries every shelf fungi so cattle need this stuff in their rumens and she didn't get it as a baby because they just had pasture i mean they had woods but they didn't put the cows in the woods so she's like i gotta come home with you so i yeah um and oh what were we talking about i don't know i had asked about the burning because you had mentioned yeah. Oh, the burning. So, so, uh, so she got added, and the blueberry field got added, both basically in the same year. The blueberries, I got hooked into that one because the cow I got hooked into because it was learning for me, because I'd never really kept a cow. I'd milked some cows with some. I'd spent two years helping someone milk, but I'd never been around one closely to like wander in the woods with her. So it was learning. Sure. And that was what attracted me. But the the blueberry field was simply I couldn't bear it for it to be houses because I'd raked it for 16 years with the guy that made the field and he was just going to let it go to houses. So now I'm double booked with two farms and both could be full-time, both should be full-time. And, and it's pretty insane, but it's a really, really special spot up there. We have a little walking path up through the woods that we own or I own. I'm still paying Gary. It's an owner finance, (laughs) but I have the deed. (laughs) I'm close, close to being paid. And there's birch up there that I'm going to start managing as, the birches that we should have pulled and dug out and everything else and we instead <laughs> didn't get to because I have two farms. Well, now it's going to be part of my grant to cut them <laughs> and study them as fodder. And we're just going to do one-year-old birch until maybe we will wipe it out doing it every year. But that's kind of the aim. But then and the sides are all wonderful. Oak and beach and beach is a spring fodder, but oak is all the time. Sure. So I want to ask a little bit about the tree silage that you do. What what exactly does that process look like? Is it the same as making traditional silage or is this a little bit different? Yeah, you're right. Well, well, you know, we have now we have all these choices of plastic containers that are airtight. I've tried all the different barrels around here that get used for something else that have a lever or a screw lid. Some of them don't exactly seal. You just have to notice when they don't seal and maybe add some old used saran wrap in there (laughs) or put a bag you know plastic bags seem to be everywhere so you can stuff a bag full of leaves at the top and stuff that down and that helps the top be sealed but you don't even need the barrel to be full as long as there's no airflow like there's okay to have some air in there because it'll get used up right away and then it'll be a vacuum as long as there's no airflow as long as it's airtight and you can have twigs so you can have twigs in there you can strip willow by just running your hand down it and get all the little twigs, you know, run it backwards. Uh, I just stripped elm yesterday. Was that yesterday? Yeah. And I didn't realize how easy it is to strip elm leaves by hand. I mean, it's like nothing. And you have this big handful of leaves just running your hands just upwards up the stalk. They, they strip. Ash is more of a snapping thing. You get these little pom-poms of leaves that are all bunched together. And it just makes me think, you know, these must have evolved to be grazed. That's why they're bunched like that for a good, efficient mouth bite. Yeah, that makes sense. And I had read that a coppicing was a response to most of the megafauna that would just destroy the trees as they started sprouting up. Interesting, because my impression was that coppicing wasn't as prevalent until later, kind of came like once the enclosures happened and once there was more fencing going on then coppicing works because coppicing doesn't work with browsers around because the trees get stunted by everybody nibbling them. So pollarding is more of a, like when the animals used to roam more freely, pollarding worked. Yeah. I mean, I don't mean like in terms of human management, I'm thinking, uh, I'm talking more like millions of years ago. Oh, okay. The tree, the tree knowing how to do it. Yes, exactly. 
Okay, I get it. I was reading that, like, if we imagine... Well, both, pollarding and coppicing. I'm sure there were tall megafauna that, that pollarded trees. <laughs> Just like a, a feller buncher that, you know, breaks them off high. Yeah, and that, you know, the way the landscape probably looked, you know, a million years ago or two million years ago was probably... A forest would look... Everything would have been coppiced, essentially, because of the fact... Coppiced or, or pollarded. Or pollarded. Everything just getting broken down, just like pasture getting grazed, except they're breaking down tree matter because exactly. they're these big, big grazers. Yeah, yeah, elephants, or bigger than elephants way back. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting concept. Yeah, well, the trees clearly know how to respond to breakage. And, you know, supposedly pollarding makes them live twice as long. And we know of these thousand-year-old oak trees that were still going. Like, one of them was still going in 2013. No. Yeah, 2013, when Ian Rotherham wrote his book, uh, Ancient Woodland, Woodlands? I don't know. Anyway, Ian Rotherham is in England, and he has lots of books, some of them really seriously scholarly. He's like the editor with various chapters by people, and then, and then that one is more of almost a picture book, and he has this postcard of this tree that was there in 11-something and was too big for the, for, for the army to cut down. So it got left. Is that the one that looks, it's like 25 feet long and it looks like it's just a, a almost like a dense woodlands, but it's actually one tree? No, no, no. This is, no, this is a tree that was an oak that was like a one ball. Well, it might have started out with more balls, but now it's, then it was like 15 feet wide or 20 feet wide. So with the tiny top, because they were cutting the top. So new growth on the top and this little boy or this, this young man standing next to the doorway in the tree like he lives there oh yeah now that you say that it sounds familiar like the elf is real and and you know these old trees often usually were hollow and people could live in them. <laughs> it's wild it's one one of the ways to you know have a green house because you have no dead roof <laughs> yeah that's absolutely that and the and the collier's huts that are also i think in ian that in that same book he has collier's huts that are sod huts that are like a, a really steep teepee with sods and the sods can be alive. That's another nice way to house ourselves that doesn't involve killed surfaces. Hey there, it's Andy from the Poor Pearls Almanac. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. As you can probably tell, this content involves extensive research and editing to release weekly episodes. If you think this content is valuable for the future that we inherit, please consider financially supporting this project by visiting poorproles.com and clicking on the Patreon, Venmo, Ko-Fi, or PayPal tabs. Every dollar helps offset our costs for hosting the podcast content and helps offset hundreds of hours of work put towards this project monthly. Thank you for supporting us by sharing, liking, and donating to this project. Together, we can build a better future. With this practice, I want to ask... Is this something that you think can be applied in a large scale? Like, is this something that in an ideal situation, if there was money and resources that we could say, we can create these civil pasture systems based on tree fodder? Yeah, well, you know, there's, I don't, I don't think even with our leaf separator and even with all kinds of mechanical harvesting, it's not as easy as doing grass, except the grass doesn't grow a lot of years now. Yeah. And, but the thing is, is the trees may die too. I mean, we may all be on our way out, but the trees have a little bit more of a hope to be able to be reliable. 
than the grass at this point. Plus there's all those other nutritious benefits. Plus they're creating the weather. And if we could start eating off of woodlands and have them be woodlands that we're eating off of, we're going to do, you know, we're going to um, restabilize the climate. At least the IPCC says we, it will locally, but they say they can't guarantee globally because they can't computer model it because it's too complicated. But they do say with high confidence in the IPCC um, special report on climate change and land. I'm not sure if I'm quoting that title right, but something like that, you'll find it on the internet. They say, yes, high confidence that local effects of the latent heat transfer by plants of the evapotranspiration, locking all that heat energy of the sun up in the molecules of water vapor, and then the water vapor rising and going away two kilometers up and then coming down as rain. Uh, it releases the heat when it condenses way up there. It releases it into the atmosphere and it goes away. So the plants are actively exporting heat energy from the sun, you know, by stripping land surfaces. We've impaired that ability of the planet. And if we shift our eating to be eating out of the forests, that could stabilize the climate. Yeah. Because there's a lot more evapotranspiration in all this foliage height diversity than there is in flat, uh, especially in cropland, which is sometimes bare part of the year but even, even more than in pasture. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that's pretty obvious when you start thinking about it logically, like even a C4 grass, a, a summer warm season grass, stops really photosynthesizing when you get above 85, 90 degrees. So if you have this tree layer that can absorb that and allow those grasses to continue photosynthesizing at a lower temperature. Yeah, because the thing is the trees, the trees stop too, I think, but, but they're cooling they're cooling the atmosphere so it doesn't get as hot. <laughs> They're cooling the area around them. Exactly. So the grasses below can continue to do those things. That's right. And us, what about us? I mean, we can continue to exist and breathe. It's, yeah, I guess that's important. It, it's really nice to work in the sheep, <laughs> let me tell you, as a farmer. Yeah, I mean, I look at my sheep and I, I'm sure you think the same thing with your goats when it's those heat waves come through. I, I go out and they're usually in shade and I'm just like, you guys are have no idea, like, 30 feet that direction, you'd be uh, be looking for another haircut. <laughs> right. And so if you have pollards all through those open fields, whether it be pasture or crop fields or hay fields, which is what Europe used to have, they, they never used to take the, the trees out of the fields. They used to just prune them to make a field. And all those little shadows of pollards are up on a stalk, so they're moving shadows, unlike a coppice, which is a blob near the ground making one spot of shade and keeping the grass away. A pollard has a little moving lollipop shadow, which also moves your livestock to be shitting different places when they're hiding in that shadow. And the impact is a little bit spread out. Some people like tall, <laughs> taller pollards with the pom-pom because then it moves the livestock further. No, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> to spread the manure better <laughs> and the impact, you know, to decrease the impact on any given spot. Um, but if you have... You know, they went to rows once they had row equipment, once they had horse-drawn equipment, then they made all the trees get into rows. But before that, they weren't in rows. They were just wherever they were, people kept them because they were the, seen as the fertility of the field. And they just pollarded all the bushes and the trees. So when Linnaeus wrote a list of the, the species in a hay meadow, like half the species were trees and bushes. <laughs> <laughs> and they were, they were harvesting all of them for the animals. And they, were, they, and they knew that that was the fertility of the field, that the root dieback and the leaves dropping was the fertility, which is why we have these, you know, these hearts with a tree growing out of it, with all the species, the, the tree of life. 
a nice European folk symbol painted on furniture and my grandmother painted it on a little bellows that I have. Anyway, tree worship was because, yeah, the fertility really comes from trees. Yeah, so I want to ask, we've covered all of this very interesting stuff and kind of meandered around the utilization of trees. Well, I do it all day, you know, so I can't do conversation. Yeah, no, no, I I think it's great. Um, I think it's really... The way my growth like to live. It blows me away that I can go off in any tangent and you can talk about these subject matters in such depth, uh, which I, I really appreciate. But I guess my my final question really for you is, do you have... Oh, but we never got to the part, um, you know, so modern day. Sure. Uh, like, can we do this? Yeah. Can we do this? Well, we might have to do this. Uh, it's not going to be economical. I uh, Don't let the grant people that I'm applying to hear me say that. <laughs> It's going to be because this is life. This is the way that life works. It worked for 8,000 years. It's pleasant. It's a good lifestyle. It's not economical, but the economic system is eating the planet surface. Yeah. But, but also there are ways, I mean, I'm trying to do these grants that make it more economical. Like, you know, Lucas tree is already pruning things in a five-year cycle does five years ring a bell? Didn't early in this conversation, I said, Ingvild Austed says that in Norway, they said five-year cycles were sustainable for the trees. Mm-hmm. So Lucas tree is pruning power lines in a five-year cycle. That's called job security, right? <laughs> they prune them in a way that's sustainable for the trees. So, so those are nice, juicy growth of happy trees under power lines, especially if they're cutting them properly. And um, that's a whole bunch of good greenery that's just either getting sold as biomass or just dropped blown blown as chips into the woods on spot and art batson who owns the company is willing to to take a step here and a step there with me to figure it out to put some of that stuff to use so that that's a situation where the farmer doesn't really have to do the labor because the labor is already happening and the willow biomass people at state university new york they're not doing anything with fodder yet but they're doing all this willow biomass but maybe the leaves you know maybe they could cut it when there's leaves on it and use the leaf separator and send a whole bunch of stuff to the farms. So there are ways, there are ways they all involve, you know, some fuel and everything else that we're doing wrong. <laughs> but, but anytime you do something like that, you feed the animals with something from the trees. That means one field that doesn't have to be bare, you know, that means you're not eating something else. They're eating out of the woods, which means we can have more woods to support people and less open to support the same people. You know, we don't have to strip land to support people. Yeah, it speaks to a fundamental rethinking of what it means to be productive, so to speak, and that you're speaking about the fact that our economic system isn't compatible with sustainability in terms of this kind of work, and that we really need to think about, you know, what is work? How how do we incorporate things like landscape management as a part of that? And how do we disconnect that from economic modeling as we think of it today, where the infrastructure in place has created a system that is imbalanced. And we have things like railways and all these other things that allow us to bring in hay and this and that to places where it otherwise wouldn't make sense. And we would be doing these things. So I talk about people being hydroponic people where, you know, you could be parked on any, on any spot with your same old house and all your nutrients shipped in and your energy shipped in and 
no roots and no flavor. <laughs> Hydroponic meaning just the nutrients aren't you're you're not rooted there. You're just being fed, you know? Yeah. Someone said, Oh, but there's all these people to feed. And I'm like, there's something wrong with saying that. We used to get together and feed ourselves. There's not there's not any obligation on me, a farmer, that oh, there's all these people to be fed. I somehow because I'm feeding myself, I have to now feed all these other hundreds of people. No, we used to do it together. <laughs> feed ourselves by feeding feeding yourself is an action. It's not passive. You don't just sit and wait and get fed. I mean, this hasn't been working. We're killing everything doing that. It's like it's like a beehive with too many drones. The drones are the bees that are are male, but they don't work and make honey. And they just hang around to, to breed the queen. And when you see a hive with a whole bunch of drones, it means the queen's dead or the queen's failing. And there's not enough workers and the hive is on its way out. Well, that's what we've got right now. The hive is on its way out, folks, if we don't get in gear and start actually doing physical things that support ourselves. And, you know, climbing trees is just one of those many, many things that's actual, actually labor. It's doing something. It's like the climbing gym, except that you apply it. <laughs> you know, we have this thing, right? people say, oh, you work so hard. Yeah, well, where's my recreation and where's my downtime? It's all together. It's not all working hard. I'm hanging out. I'm taking naps at any time of day I want to out there. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, one of the things people forget is when we talk about things like culture and identity and all of these things is a reason why it's tied to our food, because our food comes from our ecology and our landscapes where we live. And all of these things, like you said, are really intertwined in how we identify ourselves. And if we're not being a part of the thing that's working on the landscape, then how are you tied to the, the fruits of that labor? Right. And then there's this whole eco ecological consideration of simply having a feedback loop, as soon as you're detached by a consumer system, you don't know your impact. You don't know what you're doing wrong. We can do a lot wrong and not even see it and think we're doing just fine by voting with our dollar and buying from the right, you know, buying the right brand. But it's not real feedback. You know, like it's to be in touch with what the, the actual live things that are feeding you you have a relationship. I notice when those trees, some years the trees don't look good. Some years they look better. I'm like, oh, something's different with the air. Something's different with the pollution. Something's different with the way the sun's coming through the atmosphere. I think it's been better since COVID. I think maybe just the lack of airplanes. <laughs> I don't know. But you have a direct feedback loop. You know, like I know more than most people, or I think, you know, I get the impression that we're probably on our way out which is easy to ignore if you're not up in the tree leaves, you know? And so I'm, I'm more highly motivated about, you know, teaching and, and helping people to, to think about lifestyle change or, or committing to some spot and really getting to know it, you know, even if we're on our way out, how about, how about love? How about getting, getting, you know, some intimate involvement here before we go out and at least make an attempt to, to pull things back together in ecological communities of, of you know, multi-species communities, what I'm talking about. The earth continues on with or without us, and we should at least do our part in terms of managing what that could look like. Or at least just get in touch with our own impact in a, yeah, in some kind of, so I get kind of intense about all this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, this whole podcast is about ecology, agriculture, and climate change. So, you know, the, the end result of us not doing anything is why we're where we are right now. 
And these are parts of the conversation about thinking about what that future should look like if we want to survive and not just what it should look like, but what it has to look like. And these these are part of it. Right. Well, and there's and there's many, 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 many ways of being closely involved and interacting with what feeds you. Many, many ways. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to say um, I have those two studies that I've quoted in a few things I've written that are Neolithic times. And people sometimes send me these things or I find it somewhere and I'm not really that interested in Neolithic times because I'm, I'm now, you know, but I read them because I'm kind of curious, well, you know, about this pollarding thing. And so two places, one's Bulgaria and the other, I forget where, but somewhere also in Europe, I think, or Eastern Europe, maybe. The archaeological evidence of pollarding to feed livestock or, you know, wandering with grazing animals and living on a lot of dairy, <laughs> mostly, and some meat, is no soil erosion. The archaeologists know the civilization was doing that type of agriculture of just living off of forests because there's no soil erosion. <laughs> so, yeah. So, you know, we start this, you know, the further you open the fields first, first they just pruned the trees and made the fields and then they started making them go in rows and then they started taking the rows out. <laughs> and it's not necessarily progress. No. So for folks that have been listening and want to know more about what you do or want to maybe take a class with you or read some of your work. Yeah, and I had that, that one thing. Um, so I'll say my email right now, but hey, folks, if any of you farm at all and you're interested in silages from trees and leaf separation to make those really leaf-dense silages that I'd like to make, I need people to email me yes <laughs> who are farmers because I'm – keep applying for these grants and they want to see that other farmers are interested. So I'm kind of keeping numbers of how many emails I get that say, yes, we're interested. What is the requirement to be qualified as a farm? Do you need to file a schedule F on your taxes or can you just say I homestead or I'm going to say anyone that's anyone that's keeping livestock that has to do with, you know, producing food. Okay. Because I mean, it's mostly livestock people. If, if you're in siling leaves. It has to be, you know, for people that might use the practice. Sure. But I'm not going to say you have to be one that files. I didn't file for years. Okay. I do file now as an official farmer. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So S-H-A-N-A-H-A-N-S-O-N. That's Shauna Hansen. I'll say it again. S-H-A-N-A-H-A-N-S-O-N. All ends as in Nancy. At gmail.com. <laughs> is my email and if you forget that then look up the website and look up contact us and it has my address my email my phone is the best to reach me it's voicemail no texting but the the website is the number three so three streams plural farm belfast me so three streams farm belfast me and three is not spelled out just the number dot blogspot.com B-L-O-G-S-P-O-T dot com. So Three Streams Farm Belfast M-E, as in Belfast, Maine, not Ireland, dot blogspot dot com. Has a resource page, has a grant page with all the, all the many, many pictures of other farms when I fed this stuff to the animals. Then there's a home, a, a farm offerings page that talks about my milk trades, etc. And lots of other things, turkey tails in my woods and 
And then there's a blueberry page that we've hardly put anything on yet because my ex-intern who can access the web page <laughs> just, just created that one and I didn't send her anything. <laughs> Do you have any classes coming up? Uh, not official, but I always... I always make time for people if you want to come do an internship or if you want to just come and have a tour and learn or have like a one day workshop, I'll do individual anytime to schedule ahead with me and I will make time for that. Like I said, I'm not sure if I'm doing the tree potter seminar the same next year. I'll always create one for somebody <laughs> and take you around and teach you to climb with ropes if you like or not. So my phone is the best way to reach me, and that's 207, which is all of Maine, 338, which used to be all of Belfast, Maine, mm. <laughs> 3301. So 207-338-3301. Email, I'm not going to get it in a timely manner. I will get it probably, but sometimes I miss them. My eyes really don't like to look at the computer, uh, but I do use it to send documents and literature to people and links and stuff yeah i appreciate it i highly recommend folks if they're interested reaching out because you the amount of information that you can talk about is just surreal so i i feel like every time we talk well because i talk to a lot of farms so i hear what their livestock eat for instance eli berry's cattle were eating oak sprouts really juicy oak sprouts in the winter like stuff yeah. you wouldn't think of <laughs> people tell me so it's, it's good. I get to collect this information. Sheep, sheep don't eat alder except when it's dried. Turns out that's traditional in, in Europe for them to eat it dried. But the ones in Sedgwick would wait until it dried and then eat it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, well, Ingvild says that that's traditional over there, that they don't eat it fresh, alder, sheep. I don't know. Maybe there are some sheep that eat it, but so far not <laughs> yeah, so that that's i think again speaks to that knowledge so if folks want to learn more go check out your website email you support doing more research call me. leave me a voicemail make sure you say your number it doesn't have caller id and email me yes <laughs> if you're interested in tree leaf silage and leaf separation and kind of mechanical um ways of making silage from tree cuttings more efficiently Hanson at gmail.com. <laughs> yeah, I, I will definitely be reaching out in the future to talk to you a little bit more about that because we we don't have time right now, but it's something I definitely want to learn a little bit more about. Yeah, well, if we get this farmer grant we're going to apply for, we'll learn more. Yeah, and um, I will be trying to make a trip up to Maine. <laughs> awesome. That'd be fun. Yeah. So, Shauna, thanks so much. This was great. Yeah.